This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Flicks.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me writer director DWMO, or David, as I'm going to call him from here on in, to talk ostensibly about a film he has in development called Cold Water. Hello, David. Hello, Stuart. How are you today? I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, I, I should I should um, put a, put a kind of uh, in brackets here. This is the second time I've spoken to David. We had a wonderful conversation about his filmmaking and his habits and his loves and whatever and technology put a ghost in it and left a rather noisy interference all the way through it so this is our take two so hopefully technology is a bit kinder to us today what do you think david uh well you you, you would hope it was um you know it's the it's uh, the podcast uh, redo <laughs> <laughs> so i think of, i'm thinking of this more as like the uh, the dw malt reboot yeah. Oh no, 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 no. Re- reboot is a horrible, horrible, horrible term. Reboot should only ever be used when you need to reboot a computer. The idea that has any relation to cinema, because its immediate associations are with really bad Hollywood filmmaking, which is just an excuse to take money off brainless teenagers. Well, I'm not sure we ever could achieve that with this. So maybe you're right. Mm. So Cold Water. Yeah. Is an adaptation of a Gwendolyn Riley novel of the same name. That is correct. It's a debut novel. It won uh, the Betty Trask Award. It was nominated for Somerset Morning Prize. I think it came second or third. And um, it all takes place in Manchester. Well, look, before you go into detail of the book, um, we'll we'll come to that later. Uh, okay, just give yeah. me a brief synopsis of Cold Water, the film that you're trying to make. Oh no, it's, that's kind of like that's kind of like pitching, isn't it? Um... <laughs> it's only it's only so we know what we're talking about before. Okay, we well, it, it's it's. I very much make films that are very very un-English, and what I mean by that that I'm not interested in plot at all. I'm interested in character and mood and tone. You know, I'm very much um, a formalist uh, filmmaker, so very, very minimal dialogue, lots of long takes. Uh, You know, pejoratively, certain British critics have labelled this slow cinema. Mm. 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, great contemporary formalist filmmakers who would be people like Pedro Costa, uh, Bruno Dumont, uh, Lazanzo Alonso, Carlos Segadas, you know, people like that. Uh, and so my, my interpretation of this book, it's very much a book of loneliness and Urban and Nui, uh, that idea, that time when you post-university age, even if you didn't go and you're kind of wondering what you're going to do with your life, at the backdrop there's, you know, uh, a relationship ending, so you're kind of an existential, it's a definite existential crisis film. Okay, well I think that, um, that, that'll suffice as a, as a way of introducing it. Um, but before we go into more detail about you, you, your your process of making that film. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of... Can we get a little bit of background on you? So, sort of where or how was your love of film first born? Now, I'm asking that question knowing the answer you gave me last time, so I, I look forward to hearing it again. Uh, well, I... I originally wanted to be a journalist, and originally when I was coming to the time when you have to select options to... School's probably changed now, but, you know, when I was at school, around the end of third year, before you did your GCSEs, you had to specialise which subjects you wanted to do, and there were labelled options. And that time I wanted to be a football journalist or sports journalist. Hmm. And, and so my aim was to do that. And then I kind of got forced... Not forced into things, I kind of ended up studying this media YTS course at a place in Toxic called Charles Wharton College. And that's where my love of filmmaking came from. I'd always loved film. Yeah. Uh, and But around that point, I was kind of falling out of love with uh, wanting to be a sports journalist. And I was looking about being maybe a film critic or something. And then we had to do one of these stupid... Uh, modules to do with video production and I used to hate it and then when it was my turn to be the director everything just kind of slipped into place and it was really this is really easy and it's really great and I also realised if you're the director you don't have to carry any of the equipment or (laughs) do any of the rubbish stuff and I was like oh this is great obviously I'm being really facetious but not really Um, and so then I was like yeah this this is something I really really want to do and so I didn't go to film school um, around that time I was re- I was doing A-levels because I hadn't done them hmm. uh, I got great A-level results, I got accepted into an amazing one of the best universities in the world uh, I decided not to go because I got involved in setting up a listings magazine in Liverpool called Elsine uh, you know I think most people are aware of, of Publications now, uh, it would now be a blog probably. Yeah. Uh, but it was like the equivalent of Time Out, but in Liverpool. And I was the brave filmmaker. Brave that, David, though, really, you know. Pardon? Was that, was that, was that, did you consider that a brave move at the time, not turning your back on university or? Uh, if I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or an architect or a scientist, yes. But I think to be, to be working in the creative arts, to go to university, and the course I was doing wasn't really because it's an undergraduate course, and so you can't really specialise in production or stuff like that, and this university doesn't do those type of courses because yeah. they're frowned upon. <laughs> and so, well, no, they are. 
And and so I didn't think it was a gamble because I was like, you know, it was a great honor to get, I think the course I'd applied to do and I did all the tests and everything, I think there's only like 18 places and I think that over 8,000 people apply for those 18 places. Yeah, and so for me, that, that was a great to get accepted. But then it was, well, if I don't do this, you know, my, my life's going to go off in a completely different direction. Now, if I just take a year out and I try and see what happens with this, I can always go back. You know, you can't defer uh, on, on these type of courses, you know. You, but because I'd been accepted once, I'd have a good chance of getting back or even going somewhere else. And I was like, you know what? I'm young. I can still do that. And so I worked at El Cine as the film editor, as full-time film critic. Uh, I got to interview so many. And my, so my film, my, my practical film education was by talking to filmmakers who I'd be interviewing and asking them questions they wouldn't get asked ordinarily by people writing for, like, Empire or Total Film or whatever, and they get really bored getting asked the same questions. And then at the end of that, that's when I started writing scripts because my idea was always, well, if I want to be a filmmaker, I can go down the route of so many great filmmakers uh, outside the Anglo-Saxon world who were film critics first. And via film criticism, they became filmmakers. You know, you know, people. We don't just think of the French New Wave, mm. but we think of the, uh, you know filmmakers from Latin America and Spain. You know, film intellectuals who mm. have, have gone on to make films. And so that was my route into it. And then I started writing scripts and working with producers and stuff like that. And then how, that's how, how kind of what, and that's kind of when it happened. And halfway through this, I was like, you know what? It's pointless now to be going back to university because I'm actually, I, even as a critic, I was working with the BBC and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I'm going to take three years out of my life to go back and do a course and then pick up again. I would have to start from scratch. And you, so yeah. in the end, I didn't end up going to university, which is kind of something I kind of regret. But I can kind of guarantee if I would have gone to university, I wouldn't. Probably wouldn't be a filmmaker. I probably wouldn't, definitely wouldn't be here sitting talking to you. I'd have a hell of a lot more money uh, and probably a nice house and stuff like that. But, you know, it was just one of those crossroads that you come to. And and I, I seem to remember last time when we spoke, you, you mm. mentioned about, I think it was George Orwell watching something 50 times or something as being an education into film. No, uh, Orson Welles. Orson Welles, sorry. It's okay. Uh, Orson Welles said, the technical aspects of filmmaking, you can be learned in a day. He said, you know, he watched, he watched John Ford Stagecoach about 50 times consecutively yeah. over a weekend and then went off and made Citizen Kane. And the point he made, you know, if you understand how cinema is constructed by a viewer, as a viewer and you're working with professionals and you've got a great crew and you're working with great actors, you know, it's anyone, you can make a good film. You don't need to have gone to film school. Film school is the biggest crock of shit. Am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed you to say that? You are allowed to say it. Okay. Uh, I think it's a complete waste of money. Uh, the amount of money people are paying to do it is it's great to get your it used to be great you to be able to get your hands on 35 mil and 16 mil, but that's not the case anymore, you know, and so... I um, I think to spend that amount of money, you could actually make a film. And so, you know, anything, anything you learn or you need to learn, you can learn technical stuff you learn in two days, you know. 
So I'm not a big fan of film school. And, you know, I never would have gone to, gone to a film school if I would have gone through that route. And the thing I, when I, I do a lot, of le- a lot of lecture at university or six forms and stuff, and what I say to, I try to demystify the film process and things I say to young people are, you know, if you really want to do film at university, you, you've got to do it specialised as a postgrad. And but to do a media studies course or to do any of these film courses as an undergraduate, you're just throwing your money away. Because if you're looking for a job outside university, you're going to be on the same level as someone who hasn't been in university. You're both going to start off as a runner, you know, and that degree is going to mean jack shit. Yeah. You know, it really isn't. And if you want to work for an institution like the BBC or someone like that, you know, they won't even look at CVs with that. It doesn't matter if you've got a first-class degree in media studies from John Moores. You know, it's not worth the paper it's written on. You know, and so I say to people, you specialize, do a humanities or a science or a language and then try and get on a graduate course, a graduate scheme like the BBC do, you have a much better chance. And then if you want to do a postgrad, you know, go to somewhere like over here, London Film School or... Uh, the NFTS and Beaconsfield, which are both really, really good. Mm. But, you, uh, was, but they was... also won't accept you as an undergraduate because you've had no life experience, you know. It's kind of like goldsmiths uh, for artists. Goldsmiths say uh, they don't want to hear from anyone until they're in the mid-20s. Okay. You know, don't want to hear people right out of just on an A-level. So you say you've, got, you've got no portfolio. You've got no life experience. No, I, admit, I was I was talking to a, a, a young writer and saying you know saying that doing an English degree would probably serve him better. Absolutely. Um, so, as as someone that's that's that, that's been that's written about film a lot, um, and also you you've, you've, you've sort of made it clear you're not you're not necessarily interested in the kind of Hollywood fare that we used we used to seeing at you know most cinema plexes up and down the country. How how you know, did I, I, I should clarify that as a filmmaker? Sorry, as, not, not not as a fan. Interested in making those films? Yeah, sorry, as a filmmaker. You know, as when we started talking before we started recording it, you know, I was saying about the closed-mindedness of people either making or really into just you know mainstream cinema. Whereas I, I find people into like really difficult maybe formalist cinema, will quite happily go and see anything. Uh, I, I know I'm the same, because how, how can you criticise something if you haven't seen it, you know? And so I, I will go and see everything at the multiplex, but I'll also go and see loads of stuff in rep. Uh, living in London, you're kind of spoiled. I'll see stuff at, like, the ICA and the National Film Theatre and stuff like that. And so I'm just not interested in making... Uh, $150 million movie, certainly not at this stage in my career. You know, on, 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 on a cynical level, I think one of those offers somewhere down the line is really interesting because it's a new experience and having that amazing, huge film and that level of budget is a really interesting process. I don't think I'd want to do that all the time because it would drive you insane and you also lose a lot of control. But, you know, and, and as for watching those types of films, you know, sometimes, and sometimes you're not always in the mood to watch something really difficult and serious, say, if you're tired and stuff, you know. Sometimes you want to watch something fun, you know. I, 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 the last piece of criticism I wrote was yesterday. I, I wrote about the reissue of Alfred Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief, and that's a film that's m- much maligned by uh, people, 
because they say it's so light and fluffy and there's no depth to it and stuff like that. And, right. and I was like, yeah, but it's fun. And it's such a fun film, you know, and it's so beautiful. And I'm kind of quite ambivalent about Hitchcock anyway. I think he's possibly the most overrated filmmaker in the history of cinema, you know. And But when I say that, I mean what overrated means. It doesn't mean to say he's bad and it doesn't say he's not great. He's just completely overpraised. Mm. Sorry, let me rephrase my question then. Okay. With, with a love of wanting to make sort of what would be seen as not traditional cinema in the Hollywood sense, although quite clearly you're, you're attracted to all film, but what you, what you want to make <clears throat> is, I guess, much more serious, much more difficult mm. to imagine and make and so on and so forth. What was it in your own, you know, writing about film and that kind of almost, what the better expression, sort of homeschooling in it, that, that helped you be able to write that kind of material as a screenwriter? Uh, I don't think you just go right into that because those films are really, really difficult. And, you know, I kind of remember, uh, I think both of us are going to hop back a lot to that first podcast. I, re I remember saying last time that, and I, I related this to music, but, you know, you can relate it to culture too. Excuse me. Um, when, I, when I was a teenager, I used to religiously, like most uh, people who are culturally aware and interesting, I find, I bought the anime and the melody maker and sounds religiously and I'd read them cover to cover. And when I first started doing that, you know, my musical taste, my cultural taste were really quite banal and obvious. But by reading something that I, someone I really liked was quite interesting and they may mention a filmmaker or a novelist I hadn't heard of. And so I'd go out and I'd buy that book or, and this is pre-internet days, you know, so I'd, have, I'd go to the library or stuff or I'd research a filmmaker and then I'd, cause I'd, binge reading or watching that person and it's like a domino effect and by doing that my taste got more and more varied and more and more interested you know and certainly film wise I was absolutely saying you know as a teenager you know I'd be into uh, you know Scorsese early Scorsese and stuff like that and then but by reading interviews with him he'd mention all these amazingly weird and strange foreign directors and silent cinema and so I'd go and check them out and you know it slowly grows and you see there's the world is much bigger than the hegemony of Anglo-Saxon narrative you know there's so many different ways to tell a story and personally as a filmmaker I, I'd be quite bored working in that world of uh, the hegemonic uh, superstructures that have overtaken uh, especially American cinema. And, you know, it's a bit of a cliche to say at the moment, but it's absolutely true. Because the majority of American cinema now are made for teenagers and young people, there's no real depth to them, especially when you look to, like, the 1970s and what people call the second great golden period of American cinema, where, you know, films were made for adults. And we think of all those great films, like Studios making Taxi Driver, for God's sake, you know, and yeah, Nat yeah, Phil yeah. and stuff like that. But now, all those, all those, those type of narratives and those adult themes are done on American television. And, but they're done with narratives over, like, 20 hours, you know, which, if you watch consecutively, would be like watching a Bellatar film or a Lab Diaz 
film, you know, and, and so those themes are all done there now. You know, that's the reason why Steven Soderbergh's retired from filmmaking. He said that, and everyone thought he was going to go away and paint, but what he basically meant was he was just going to work in television from now on because he had that freedom and uh, the narrative freedom to, you know, tell a story over 15 hours. And so, so to get back to what I, I was originally saying, and so I was just saying I was interested to find a way to tell a story not in that manner, you know, and to actually be able to focus on the minutiae of objects and space and location. And they're all key elements of formalism, obsessed with the form of how one tells a story. And, you know, not even, no real plot, there's no narrative there, it's, you know, and by just focusing on someone's face, you know, I think one of the great earliest examples of formalist filmmaking was uh, Carl Dreyer's uh, Passion of Joan of Arc, which is just made up of these amazing close-ups of uh, Falchetti, who plays Joan of Arc, with nothing happening. It's, you know, it's a near-silent film, and it's just, we can tell everything from their face. That's what great act acting can do, you know, and so... But that was a long journey, you know, and I, you know, I nearly got the chance to make a film. The first feature, feature script I wrote was a script called Tete Tete that was a multi-strand narrative, all, all different young people, lots of debauchery, falling in and out of love, lots of sex, lots of self-destruction. And uh, Michael White, the legendary Michael White, was going to produce that. Now, Michael White, for people that don't know, is the guy who first brought Chekhov in Russian to England. He was a theatre producer. He produced the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He did all the Monty Python films. He did all the comic strip. You know, fairly legendary guy. And he was going to produce it. And in those days, we had an organisation called British Screen. It was run by Simon Perry. And they put up a big chunk of the budget. And then the BFI before the BFI became the UK Film Council, they'd put the last little bit of budget and then the film was going to get made. And then Alan Parker uh, called a moratorium on all UK production finance for the BFI. Uh, it's really weird that he was in that position of power at the BFI because the BFI is an organisation that he despises and he's gone on record many times of despising the BFI. He made a film called A Turnip, Turnip Head's Guide to Cinema where he just lambasted the BFI and film as art and filmmakers that they support like Terence Davis or did support like Terence Davis, Derek Jarman, Peter Greenaway, etc. And so he just blocked that off completely and then all our kind of funding fell away. But when I look back, I think if I, at the age I was then, because I was, like, in my late 20s, if I would have made that film at that point, I'd have been a completely different filmmaker. Because, you know, it was... My tastes were different. That film would have been very, very... Quite mainstream. Would have been a bit quirky. But interesting stylistic devices. But... It, and it also would have been very, a very derivative piece of cinema. Uh, it, and it had far more commercial possibilities than what I'm doing now. Or what, you, and so, but that's getting back to what I was talking about, about going and having a life and experience things, because cinema has to be about the world around you, not all the films you've seen. You know, that, that Scorsese never says a bad word about anyone, why 
he's always really negative and quite nasty towards Quentin Tarantino because he doesn't rate him at all because he says he's never lived. He's, all his films are about films. He said, you know, where that's why Scorsese always gets annoyed when people always bracketed them together just because there's violence in both of their films. You see, you know, people that say that don't understand anything about my work or anything about cinema. If that's if that's you develop, I mean, don't you think that any any time you ever do anything, it's always going to be a snapshot of your, your experience today, and you can, I mean. It, there's neither a good or a bad reason, I suppose, for something. Oh no, 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 no! Uh, you, you, you're absolutely right. That there, there really isn't, and it's about how how we evolve as uh, artists, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and knowing kind of what you want to say and what you want to do. And, you know, I, I think that's the reason why f- filmmakers age. An age of a filmmaker is really, really strange because you're. A really young filmmaker is your mid-40s because it's such an expensive art form. And, of course, there are exceptions. People say, well, you know, Orson Welles made Citizen Kane when he was 26. You know, Harmony Corinne made Gummo when he was, like, 23, 24. And I was, but these are all anomalies. Mm. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the lottery theme of when people say, oh, you know, Kevin Smith made Clerks for, like, $6,000. Oh, no... Um, around that, and El Mirachi was made for eight thousand dollars, and they just made it on the credit card, and then they sold it, and it became, they made loads of money, and they had a career. And I was like, what well, people don't realise, that's the equivalent of winning the national lottery. Yeah, because there's hundreds of thousands of other films and people that maxed out credit cards and went bankrupt because their films were terrible, or no one saw their <laughs> films, or they were unlucky. And so when people use those exceptions, that's not the norm. And so if we look at great filmmakers, they're making their best way. You normally have this golden period, you know, three or four films on your top of your game, and it's always late 40s, early 50s, which I'd say people are sort of dog age and human age. For a filmmaker to be in their late 40s, I'd say for anyone else is, for like a painter or a musician, is early 20s. That's interesting. So, you know, and, and this is not a theory, you know, go and check it out. You know, you look at, like, some of those filmmakers who, like, seen sort of, like, free, not so much commercial hits, but, like, amazing works of cinema. You know what I mean? And, and they'll have other films that lead up to those points. You know, oh, you no, can no, even no, look I mean, at some... I'm, I'm of the opinion, I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, apart from the obvious anomalies yeah. that you cite, I mean, I think in, in nearly all walks of creativity, there's there's there's... there's for every single snap success story, there's a 20-year-long overnight success story hidden behind most people you see in the headlines because these people didn't just wake up one morning and go, I'm going to do this. They've been doing it for a long time. And you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's one of those the, the huge jokes, isn't it? You know, it's like uh, overnight success. When people get labelled overnight successes, and I was like, yeah, it only took me 15 years to become an overnight success. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like... You know, I think that happened last year at the BAFTAs. The BAFTAs have this um, scheme called the Orange Rising Star Award. And if you look last year, at the ne- or this year rather, the names on that Rising Star Award were laughable. They weren't rising stars at all. Like, Leia Sadu is not a rising star, you know. She's like the biggest stars of French cinema. <laughs> you know, it's like the idea that, that BAFTA have discovered this, you know, she's done her first or second film. So, you know, let's get, uh, let's you get know, on to your go, films. Go, sorry. It's all right. It's all right. I was enjoying that. Um, 
how how did you discover Cold Water the novel and what was how it? I discover uh, Cold Water the novel. I you know read a lot um, as opposed to watching films and listening to music and going to art galleries and I came across it and I just loved it. It really really spoke to me, even though the protagonist is female. Um, and it's a book that is very cinematic, you know, it's very poetic. There's hardly any plot in it. It's kind of non-linear. It jumps around. It's all about image. You know, uh, Gwendolyn's um, description of that world is fantastic. It just really spoke to me, you know, and it was talking about a place I knew I knew pretty well. It was Manchester. Mm. Um, and it was always one of those things, and I'd always get... I'd always check to make sure no one had optioned the book, even when I was in no, no state of stuff I'd done to be that level ready. But no one really had. And, you know, when that opportunity came up and I was like, right, this is what I want to do now and I had this opportunity, you know, we just contacted her. I, got, I mean, what is the process of you optioning this book? What's the process? Uh, you asked me a technical question of what's the process if someone wants to option a book or what was... What was your process here? I'm, I'm my process that... to get this book. Yeah. Uh, well, I got... My producer contacted her um, publisher who put us in... Uh, I think it was... Contact, I wasn't sure it was contact the agent of the publisher. Yeah. And they were like... They started talking money. Now, first of all, you know, this happens a lot. The figure the age the age of the publisher put on the the rights was absolutely ridiculous. It was fantasy land, especially especially when the book uh, is a cult novel, but didn't does did like a lot of Gwendolyn's novels doesn't didn't sell at all. Mm. And they were looking for five thousand pounds for like a year, which wow. is ridiculous, you know. And I. And no, no time in a film, is it really? It's no time for yeah, a film. Well, I, and, and now, you know, going through this process and talking to Gwendolyn and stuff like that, I just know that was... That's a figure that has been put on the book to scare people away. Because, like like a lot of novelists, you're very, very protective... Like a lot of artists, you're very, and rightly so, you're very protective of her work. And lots of people have tried to option this book. Lots of people have tried to get it, and she just wouldn't... Countenance giving it to anyone because, and also I think because her books are so autobiographical, mm. it's a big deal passing your life onto someone that's going to be represented by someone else on screen. <laughs> and so we just kept coming back and saying, "Well, we kind of think that's too expensive, but you know, can we?" And then eventually, we a meeting was arranged where we went and had we were supposed to have lunch with her in yeah. Manchester. Which turned very northern was just we ended up having a, a liquid lunch and <laughs> we just got very drunk and we just talked. Her and I uh, talked about film, talked about how I saw the film because I think there's always two ways to do cold water and I think this is what she was quite worried about to do it as I'm using all these terms as pejoratives like mm. a hip Brit flick with like lots of contemporary pop music on, you know, kind of <laughs> like... we get the picture. <laughs> you know, oh, it's kind of like, it's like train spotting, but it's in Manchester and yeah. stuff like that, completely vacuous, completely empty. And that was the completely polar opposite of where I was coming from from the film. So when I sat down and started talking to her, we were talking about 
uh, French cinema. We were talking about uh, a great Taiwanese director. Actually, she's the, one of the first people I ever spoke to that actually knew who who Hsu Hsen is, and had seen some of his films. And so, and she was the other way. She was quite shocked that I was referencing that. And so, when I was talking about all these filmmakers and you know like that and the level of stillness and silence and you know stripping the dialogue out and not having voiceover and stuff like that and just to doing things with stillness and she was just like yeah this is exactly um what i would want and you know and she's a great lover of cinema as well you know she's very uh cine literate just by the conversations uh we were having and we really really bonded and you know, and, and then she just agreed right there and then, you know, it, it was even a case she allowed us to have the option. We had like a temp agreement, mm. which meant we didn't have any money to give her. But uh, she, I think we got like six months to go out and get, find money for the option. Oh, brilliant. But in that time, she, no one else could get it. And we, I went away. I hate writing treatments and synopses and stuff like that. I, I just went away and wrote a first draft. Well, and I didn't have a computer in those days, and I was living in London in a hostel. It was a very strange time. and I wrote it longhand in a really nice moleskin notebook and then gave it to my producer who typed it up. And then he applied to what was then uh, the UK Film Council uh, for development money. Before before we get into the, the, this bit, just 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 rewind a second. So when you say you went away and wrote the script longhand, yeah, um, what was your approach to the novel? Because obviously a novel is far has got far more information in it and far more words than the script's ever going to need. And certainly if you're talking about pairing it back and, and formula cinema, then there's going to be even less information for you to play with than even. Probably. Well, the book uh, the book is a very thin book. You know, I think it's only about like a hundred and so pages, and it's very big uh, font size. Mm. And and so I'd read the book so often, I reread it, I reread it, and met, wrote index cards for every scene I wanted to use, and wrote all my information on index cards. And then when I'd done that, I organised the index cards structurally in what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And then once I'd done that. It was basically, it was like doing dot to dot then. It was like, it was just writing it up. And it took me, I normally, when I'm writing a first draft of a script, the minimum I'll start off on my first day, I'll, my aim is to do 10 pages a day. Yeah. And after a couple of days, you're just in that zone. And so then it'll go up to like 15, 20 pages a day. And so I think it took me longhand to write the first draft about, including doing all the stuff for the index cards, about two weeks. Well, it's not bad going, is it? Yeah, excuse mm. me a sec. <laughs> and it was really weird because I hadn't written that intensely longhand for a long time. It was like, like being back at school, my hand used to hurt and I used to have indents where the pen had been on my <laughs> finger and stuff like that. And it used to really, really hurt and I was like... How you could you get some writers get really um you know you can't like David Mametto says you can't write poetry on a computer, you know and I was like well, what what a load of nonsense you know it's like it's whatever works for you as an individual as a writer. I was going to say the phrase I can't write poetry on the computer might be true but not you yeah. can't as a dogma. 
Yeah, and, and 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 so yeah, and so that was my process of writing it, and then it, and then of did, course, did you got, deviate? Did you have to deviate at all from anything in the book, or did you stay true? In no, I was very, 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 very true. I think one of the first draft is only well, any screenplay for me because I'm going to be directing it is only a blueprint. I'm not. Yeah. This is exactly how it's got to be, and it's it's just a jumping off point, yeah. and it was very little to the book. I bookended it with two scenes that weren't in the book. Well, that's interesting. Um, and I think that's one of the faults if you read the script and it, it was kind of me, me me being aware of this pressure and it was, it was you know it's Gwendolyn's source and stuff so I, I felt under a lot of pressure to uh, not let her creations down and stuff and yeah. now I've done like two rewrites on it and you know, a lot of the it wasn't the film I wanted to make, to be honest. That first draft, it, it, it again, it was quite, it, again, it was quite literal. But I think that that's a process you have to go through to realise, you know. And I would have made that film; it would have been nothing out of the ordinary, you know. It would have been very quite English. Mm. And but this latest draft I've done, I've changed so so much. You know, I've amalgamated characters and you know changed things around and made it much more linear, struck all the voiceover out of it, you know. And it's actually the first time I've ever done a rewrite that's gone down in page size. Oh, well done. So, because I think the original, my first draft is around 97 pages. I think this is 83. Oof. But the, th- what, the thing about that is because f- formula screenplays are very difficult because that's why, they, that's why if you've never made a film and you want to make films in that way, even the great formalists, if they were to enter these competitions we have over here, like eye features and stuff like that, they never, ever, ever would have gone, got accepted because the scripts are very, very strange. If you've got someone walking down a road and in the script it says, you know, Stuart walks down the road in Ooh. silence, that's like one line in a screenplay. In the film, that could be three minutes long. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, the idea of a, a one-page of screenplay as a minute of screen time for foremost filmmaking doesn't apply. And so 83 pages in this script that I've got at the moment, the film are more likely to be close to two hours because there's lots of things in real time, like travelling on, on the trams in Manchester and stuff like that, just that level of silence and contemplation. And so, and so that's the reason I've always said that. If someone like... You know, one of the greatest filmmakers working today, the Iranian director Abbas Kurastami, ha- hadn't become Abbas Kurastami yet, and he applied for Eye Features next year for his first film. He wouldn't get shortlisted, and that's a fact. You know, he just wouldn't because his screenplay would be very, very short. Even his treatment would be really short. Nothing really much would happen in it. And those people, you know, the level of imagination there, that they're, they're looking for, for quite plot-driven things for those type of competitions and stuff like that. And so... Well, I must admit, I mean, I've read... I mean, they're not, they're not, I'm not necessarily formula cinema, but I've read sort of scripts from people who are not necessarily traditional filmmakers. So yeah. some Jim Jamoosh stuff I've read. Yeah. Where it's kind of 50 pages, but clearly yeah. the film was two hours. Absolutely, yeah, I know. You know, well, the same for, like, uh, the last, the last Carlos Regadas film, which is a masterpiece, uh, post Tenebus Lux, is the script was prose about five or six, eight pages, ten pages of prose. 
That was the script. You know, uh, Bruno de Mons the same. His, his scripts are just prose with no dialogue in them. See, that would that would challenge me. I think. I mean, I just I think it's I think it's just what you in a, in a sense it's it's what you're it's what you're used to seeing translating into what you're expecting. Whereas obviously this is this is like saying. You know, you, you, I haven't said that. You, you do have to say, you know, both of those filmmakers have got to that point where they can do that. And, you know, even Carlos Egedas can really won Best Director, um, not last year, the year before, for post Animus Looks, said at the press conference how difficult the film was to get made and stuff, even with his name. And every film he's ever made is played in the official selection of Cannes. Mm. And, but, you know, he said, my first script was scripted properly, but he said now, and he said, you know, Bellatar said it as well, that they'll have one script for finances and sales agents, and they'll have the script he's going to make. Yeah, and that makes and perfect sense. So that'll sense. be like the pros if you're working sense. within that in that way, and then uh, something completely different. Because no one, no one after he, no finance is going to, after you do your film, and say, oh, this is not the film I gave you money to make. Well, I'm just saying, you know, these are these are filmmakers over the years that have got to that point. So it's like that's why it's very hard if you want to start right start off making films like that. It's so difficult, you know, especially if you're trying to get public funding. And well, stuff. it must be because I mean, I think I think even more sort of traditional plot lines, um, those scripts still end up being often more more detailed and more on the nose to help yeah. investors and the like understand what it is. And then when the filmmaker takes it away. You know, there's a red pen put through that in a the minute. They've had the nod. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry, I interrupted you there. You were talking, you were about to go in, in terms of the first draft, you were about to go yeah. into talking about going to what was the UK Film Council mm-hmm. with, with that, that type well, of you, uh, we, we did go to the UK Film Council and uh, they were great. We were dealing with a guy there called Chris Collins who was still there. He was a really good... Um, he's produced some really good work, and now he's working in that institution. I mean, what were they? Ju- I mean, let, let, just just think about this. What, mm. We haven't even talked about. Pro- like you've, you've mentioned a script you'd written before that, that sort of got some good attention, yeah. but it didn't get made. Um, but at this stage, when you're talking to UK Film Council with the script and your producer, what are they looking at you as evidence as a filmmaker? What have they got to look? Well, no, because I, 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 I've made various shorts under their schemes. You know, the okay. regional screen agencies that don't exist anymore yeah. uh, have schemes. I, there's something called the Virgin Short Scheme, which I got £1,000 and met my first short. And then I did uh, their highest rung, which is a, a digital short scheme, which I got about nine grand. Mm. And so I've been through that process. And so they'd seen both of those films, they'd seen that. Can I ask a question about that then? Does that would you say that was more for them to judge you as a filmmaker, or was that to build a relationship with you as a filmmaker? It's kind of both. I think the way things are, there is there is like a route you have to go down. You know, mm. they don't say if yourself. I have friends who self finance their shorts and stuff. Yeah, and they you can't get to the point of then because they don't know who you are, even though they've seen the films, they need to know you, and they need to, you need to be on their radar. So you need to go through all these schemes and work your way up, and then eventually, like, have you got an idea for a feature? And so you're not going in there blind, and they don't who, know, know who you are. And so for me, it was kind of, they kind of knew who I was, and uh, you know, and then because of that, they also want to see evidence that you can actually direct, because even 
your first low budget film is going to be between half a million and a million pounds, yeah. you know, realistically. And so that's a lot of money. So they need to know that you can, you know, do that. Because, you know, the, making a short, making a feature film is completely different. You know, it's, I know it's quite obvious saying that, but it's kind of like the difference between doing a sprint and doing a marathon. You know, and the idea of asking a great this great sprinter to run a marathon without any training is going to be a bit of a disaster. You know, it just is. And so they they need to know that you, you can do that. And that's one of the reasons why they gave us money to option the novel. Uh, and also they gave us money. They wanted me to shoot sample scenes uh, from the script, which we did, which was kind of a bad idea. I think, because if you're showing them to someone who doesn't know the book or hasn't read the script, there's no context. Mm. And so they think they're really, especially, I had a lot of other finance saying they were under-directed. Now, I don't know what that means. I kind of think I do know what it means. Uh, because well, nothing's really happening. And it, it's, it's a long take with two people talking. Yeah, There's no context at all. And they're like, well, you know, this is just... And I was like, under-directed, but you mean the camera should be flying around, there should be 15,000 cuts, and there should be pop music coming in? You know, because directing is what it is. There's no right or wrong way to direct. It was like, it's, it's what your vision is and how you want to tell that story. <laughs> and, uh, and, and also, it was like, it wasn't the crew I would use, and it wasn't the equipment I would use, it wasn't... You know, because you're much on a lower budget, and it's just it's just weird, you know. Well, no, no, I think I remember saying to you at the time, uh, last last time we did this, that uh, I knew there were sample scenes, but even so, because I watched them all back to back, yeah, it, it it felt it felt like I should be what I felt like I was watching a narrative in themselves. So I think yeah. there's a cut between two scenes where it's the two people at the bar, mm. and then the same girl appears up out of a uh, a booth, as it were, in a bar. Yeah. As, it, as if she spent the night there, and then the bloke's missing. And I'm like, where's the bloke gone? But yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, they weren't rela- there was no relationship. Yeah, to no, them. Uh, uh, exactly. And yeah. so, you know, it was, it was just one of them. And so and that, that was the process with them. What was the positive? What was the positive? If that was the negative, what was the positive out of being able to do those sample scenes? Uh, it gets you closer to your cast, because it, the, the cast was a great cast, and they're all still there, and... You know, it, it 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 says to them, you know, that you know you're going to make this film and you can make this film. It gives them confidence and stuff like mm. that. And so, those 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 are positives. It, it's it was, the positives are also. I think it was. Um, I know what not to do, or you know <laughs> how I would change things and uh, stuff like that. Because so, someone asked me the other day, they were like, "Oh, that, that's like." Um, at least about a big chunk of the film already shot. So when you do the rest of it, you can just cut that stuff in. And I was like, are you insane? (laughs) You've been smoking crack. It was like, (laughs) no, 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 that will not happen. First of all, because we've moved on in time and the actors have aged. Yeah. Even a year or so. And also, it's on a completely different format with the the different DP and stuff like that. And so, no, all those scenes would be completely redone in different locations, sometimes with different actors. Yeah, the idea, the idea that you can make... And so, and so, so it's a good treat. thing to do. You know, my producer always says, 
whatever you do in filmmaking, it's always it always takes you forward. As long as it's taking you forward, even though it's a horrible experience, is a good thing. And you know, he's absolutely right. No, I'd agree, I'd agree with that. So before we started the podcast, you were talking about having just recently done a rewrite of it, and you mentioned it briefly in that conversation about yes. doing the first draft. Mm. And part of what you were explaining to me was. And not so much a difficulty in the rewrite, but more of a reluctance to start the rewrite and get it done. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I was supposed to have six weeks from Cannes. Now, Cannes ended uh, last week in August. Last uh, August, week in May, May even. Uh, and so I had six weeks from then. So obviously I delivered it last week, so that's how late I was. <laughs> um, and I literally had to force myself to do it, and I kept putting it off. And, and it, but it was hovering like a black cloud over my head, or like a monkey on my back. And you know, I was taking anytime I go to the cinema, or you know, I'd write a, a review of a film I'd seen. I kind of thought, well, I should be doing, I should be doing this Cold War to rewrite. And then I knew I was every time the phone went, I was like, it's going to be a producer saying, where is it and stuff. And then I got the email saying, you know. Um, when when can we expect this? You know, people are now waiting. You know, there's other people, other people that were asking for, it, but there's other more interesting uh, funders wanting to read it and stuff like that. So, so like, let's, let's get to put this in the picture. Then, so the draft you, that everyone's wait that your producer's waiting on is the yeah. one he wants to send out to interested parties. Yeah, because it's pointless sending the old one. And, and I just said to him, I said, well, I'd actually started doing it and I realised that this needs loads and loads of work I don't want to and this is going to take me longer and I, I said to him well, it's worth waiting rather than I can give you something now but what you send out you want to send out to these people you've got one chance you know what I mean and so you want it to be the best it can be no one's going to say we're not going to accept it it was like a couple of weeks late so just allow me that time frame and in the end like writing reviews and criticism and like even doing essays and stuff when I was at school uh I just always leave everything at the last minute, and then I'm, this internal pressure forces me to do it. I think I need that level of me being terrified to actually do it, which is really bad. It makes me sound like a really uh, messed up thrill seeker. But, and so, but in actuality, as I said to you before we started recording the podcast, it took me to, it wound up my producer so much because it actually took me two days to do in the end. I did, well, maybe three. I did one really long day, not like a nine to five day from like nine till probably nine in the evening. Mm. Uh, only breaking for food and stuff like that and sustenance and comfort breaks. Um, I love that phrase. It's my new phrase of the week. been using that a lot this week, comfort breaks. But, <laughs> uh, and so I did, I did a timeline of the novel because it's non-linear, and put it all in the order that it actually happens. Okay. And then I worked out, because I think before I can start writing, the structure is so important. I need to know the structure. And I think it's really, really, really integral to screenwriting. And so I had to work out, and I went through so many different structures. Was it going to be non-linear? And I had this idea of, like, there's a centerpiece of the film where she has a one-night stand with an American tourist, and that's Carmel, uh, the principal protagonist of Cold Water. Yeah. And my idea was to make this the central piece of near enough the opening scene and then jump backwards and forwards. So when she's talking about different characters and things that have happened, it's all while she's having this conversation 
with Lucas, this American tourist, and I really went down that road, and I was like, well, no, it's not really working. And it's too literal. It's kind of like cheating by using the voiceover, by having her saying something, and then you see it, or seeing something, and then you hear her talking about it. And so after doing all that work, I completely scrapped it and made it re- pared it down, um, made, it really non- made it really linear, stripped out loads of the dialogue, it was too funny. It was, you know, there's a lot of black humour in there. Took all that out. Took all the voiceover out, you know. And then once I knew what my structure was, I spent another full day, like nine to nine again, just redrafting it, basically near another cut and paste job. Mm. And then I wrote possibly twenty pages of new stuff and things, and worked that all in. And then it was done. And that kind of took me two days. Imagine. And so I did that last Tuesday, I think it was done. And the sense of relief was unbelievable. It was just like, I felt so good. I always I think it's always great, you know, you know this as well. When you finish a screenplay, whether it's a short or whether it's a feature, it just feels amazing. Even before anyone's read it and you don't know whether it's any good or whatever, just the sense of accomplishment and the endorphins it releases are fantastic. And so that was fun. And then it's the, hot, then it's the horrible thing when you finish and you get all that, and then you send it to the person that needs to read it who's been hassling you, and you don't hear anything, and you start panicking and thinking, oh, my God, it's rubbish. Why haven't they got back to me, you know, and stuff like that. And, 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 then, and then I got this message off him saying, read it twice I need to read it one more time and then I'll give you some feedback and I was like why can't you give me feedback now I'm going to all weekend you know and, and I was like this is this is this is you just this is revenge for me being late isn't it it was like you're just a masochist no a sadist he's you know, dangling your really ego mean. by a thread isn't he yeah and, and, and then I got the text message he said are you at home? Can I phone you at five o'clock to talk about it? And I was like, talk, just give me a text to let me know if it's any good. And then phones, and then you're trying to delve into the tone in his voice. And then, you know, everything's okay because it's great and it's much, much better, his words and everything. And then I can, you can breathe that sigh of relief. So where are you in the process then of, of, um, of hopefully starting to shoot this film? Hopefully it, uh, it'll shoot in 2015. Brilliant. Um, you know, I'm really quite confident about that happening. Um, so yeah, that's what to, to premiere at a major festival 2016. It, it, it's, these type of films, they, you know, they, it's really integral festival support. Yeah, you know, that's you, it's not a film that's going to go right out into the market, and you need critical support and festival support, and you know, festival support comes before critical support, and so whether that's Berlin or Cannes or Venice, you know, or even like Locarno or San Sebastian, you know, those are the type of places it would have to play at. And does that mean conversations with those festivals start before the film is finished editing? Or? No, but, no but because I've got no major um, history, yeah, and it's my first feature film, uh, having a great sales agent means if They've got a reputation because anyone can apply to those festivals. But if you just apply that you've made a film and no one knows who you are or whatever, and there's no known actors in it, we do have known actors that'll help a little bit. Mm. And you just send it in. You know, you've got to understand you know, how many people apply for Cannes? Like sixteen thousand films a year. And so, unless you have someone who 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 knows people, because in the UK they have a French journalist who's based in London called uh, Agnès Poirier. Mm. who writes for The Guardian 
and she is the representative of the Cannes Film Festival in the UK, oh. and both the festival and directors fortnight have screenings in Soho for her of all the films early in the year. And so if you have that personal relationship, you know, you, you can kind of say, oh, you want to know, see, see this film. And so if you have a good sales agent, like one of the sales agents we're talking to, they had like about four or five uh, films in the official selection of Cannes this year. Okay. And so they obviously know that process, and also the festival, not just Cam, but the other festivals will know them. And so they would trust them and they say, well, that's we interesting. Think I mean, it's just interesting as a definition, really, isn't it? Because, because to my mind, the sales agent is about selling a film to territories, whereas yeah. a sales agent for the type of film you're trying to make. There's a longer game, isn't there, which involves a f an intermediate step of. Well, you know, but the, there's, so, there's certain there's sales agents, and then there's sales agents. You know, when I when I use the term sales agents, I'm talking about people like Celluloid Dreams, Fortissimo, Wild Bunch, La Paz. No, 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 I understand. I'm just saying. I'm just saying no, no, but but no I'm, I'm just trying to explain the, the difference between the two. Now, those <laughs> those type of those type of sales agents will basically finance a film by. Uh, an art house director mm. completely and then let them go away and make the film and then they'll try and get that money back and stuff like that, you know, oh. and so all the money's in, 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 in one place. Now, there's other types of sales agents who you go to after making the film, they'll represent you and then they'll sell the film all over the world and then take a cut of the money. But, but within the art house world, those sales agents I've just mentioned are integral. And if you look at their slate and the filmmakers they work with and it's very difficult unless you've made a film to get on that because they don't know who you are either and so that's you know but th those are the powerhouses of world cinema yeah. you know just look at the filmmakers those people work with time and time again you know and, and, and that's how a lot of people say to me you know all these films that play the major festivals and don't get that big how do they make money you know, and it was like, it was because they're on a certain level of budget and with festival support, you know, they'll, they don't have to make lots of money at the box office by, you know, various different arcane uh, financial structures. Yeah. You know, because I, 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 th I think those sales agents I've, I've just talked about, if you look at, like, the last 10 years of the films that have won the Palm Door, the Golden Lion and the Golden Bear, I'd say those sales agents would have been involved in like ninety percent of them. Okay. It is it is it is like a twin it is it is I do find it fascinating this kind of twin cinema world that exists. There is the out and out commercial sense of the film world and then there is this art with commerce, you know, it's not you know, people are investing money, people are getting returns, but there is a very different approach to how you generate interest in in that piece of art as opposed to that film product mm. um well look sir um let's uh, let's move on to uh, a question i like to ask everybody yeah um and because we're britflix um i always like the guests to recommend as a british film that they think deserves a bit more kudos Okay, well, I, I kind of feel uh, this is cheating because I remember last time that you sprung this on me without me even even asking me or giving me an, a, 
because I'd never listened to the show before, that this would happen. And you put me on the spot, and I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to sound really uh, sinoliterate. And because I know this question is coming, and I've answered the question, it's kind of, I can roll it off the tongue. Uh, British well, give, cinema- us, give us your most expert answer, then. <laughs> yes, OK. Well, I'm going to give you exactly the same film as I, I, I gave you last time, and it is... Alan Clark's. This is interesting. Let me talk a little bit about a little bit about Alan Clark. Alan Clark predominantly made films for television, but he is more of a filmmaker than most British filmmakers working today who only release films at the cinema. Because his language, his narrative language, he understands cinema completely. He's also a great formalist. The idea that someone like this was working on television is so bizarre. Uh, the film I'm going to choose, it's only about 18, 19 minutes long, and it's mm. a film called Elephant, and there is no dialogue in the film, and it all, it takes, it's all shot in Belfast, paid for by BBC Northern Ireland. The producer on the film, who was the head of BBC Northern Ireland film, was Danny Boyle. Uh, this is easily the best thing Danny Boyle's ever had his name associated next to second only to the Olympic opening ceremony. And all it is, is a series of sectarian murders in Northern Ireland. No dialogue, lots of like, it utilizes possibly better even than Kubrick, the use of the Steadicam. There's shots of just people walking through corridors that go on for like three or four minutes. And at the end, there's some guy in a bath and they'll just get shot. And then it'll just cut to the next one. And it becomes like this rhythmical riff. And none of the murders are identified whether they're loyalist or Republican. They're just murders. You know, we only know they're in Northern Ireland because we know it's in Northern Ireland, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just a masterpiece. It's, it's, it's like, it's called, uh, the reason Gus Van Sands. Uh, Palm Door winning film Elephant is called Elephant is as a homage to this film. You know, and if anyone's ever seen the Gus Van Sant film, you know, those long tracking shots uh, through corridors and stuff are just completely... And you know, Gus Van Sant said in the press conference in Cannes, you know, he said, that's all Alan Clark. You know, and if you, you, what, you see this film, you can actually be really naughty. You can, I think it's on YouTube. Uh, it's quite hard to get hold of. But, you know, it's also fascinating that this was a film made by the BBC that was shown on primetime television. You know, this wouldn't happen now. Not at all, no. This was shown at the same time on a, Sat- on a, on a Saturday evening when Strictly was on or something, you know. <laughs> this, is what, this, this wouldn't even be on BBC 4 now, let alone primetime BBC. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I actually think it's... Um, a complete masterpiece. You know, most people I think will know, they haven't heard of this film, will know Alan Clark from Scum or Made in Britain. Yeah, of course. Or even possibly his worst film, uh, Rita Sue and Bob 2, uh, which is still quite interesting. You know, um, and, 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 and so, you know, Clark is someone, and he also made a lot of films about Northern Ireland. He made a quasi-trilogy. You know, there's, um, there's a great film called Contact, which is all from the perspective shot at night time on the hills of South Armagh with, like, the British Army, all shot night vision. Okay. And it's just fantastic. All, and all these films, are, you can't get them on DVD. You know, the BBC will never reshow them. And so you have to watch them on really bad VHS transfers online or whatever. Mm. You know, the films you can get, there's a nice box set, a Region 1 box set you can get, which has got, like, both versions of Scum 
made in Britain. The firm uh, is great for about football hooliganism. He made with Gary Oldman. And as a bonus, you do get elephants, you know, and so uh, that's a way to be able to see it because it, it should be seen. It should be seen on a big screen. And it should be seen, you know, a nice transfer, not on some grainy YouTube channel. Now, just as a little wrap up for us, I yeah. believe you, you mentioned to me last time, and I didn't I did, I, beforehand, but I didn't, I didn't even talk about this. But just, just for the last two or three minutes, you're you're pulling together an ultra low budget French language film set in New Brighton. Is that right? Yeah, well, and and that's the thing I'm currently working on. It's a idea that's fascinated me for a while. What's it um, called? Pardon? What's it called? Oh, I've no idea. The working title is just New Brighton at the moment. Okay. Uh, Obviously, the majority of your listeners won't know New Brighton. New Brighton is a faded 1950s, when it was in its prime, seaside town over the water from Liverpool. Uh, there's a I great series of photographs. Of Pardon? I said I've visited there lots of times. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm sorry for that. Uh, and uh, there's some amazing series of photographs, both by the photographer Tom Wood and Martin Parr, of New Brighton and working class families Is in the that? 80s on their, on a summer's day, and they're fantastic. People should definitely check them out. Yeah. Anyway, I'm kind of like Graham Greene. I'm kind of fascinated by faded seaside towns out of season. Hmm. And so my idea is to do this film, and it's about communication, emotional violence and communication. And so I wanted two people in a late autumn summer romance so, like, a 20-something woman and an older guy. And it's not explained why they're in New Brighton. It's not explained why they can't speak anything other than French. Hmm. And so they live in a little flat in the winter, right against the River Mersey. And the romance is twisted. Normally, in those type of romances, it's the guy that's obsessed with the woman and he's really jealous and stuff and she's mm. getting bored with him. This is the other way around. She's completely obsessed with him and he's kind of borderline asexual, definitely depressed and has trouble interacting or communicating with anyone, let alone her. And they live in a flat that's kind of like a cross between... It's kind of like the bed sit that uh, Kenneth Halliwell and Joe Orton lived in, where okay. Kenneth Halliwell caved in Orton's head with a hammer. And so the idea is they hate each other, but they can't communicate because they don't speak English with anyone outside. So they, if the only way they can communicate is with each other, and they hate each other. And so it's, it has that emotional violence of some of the best, darkest Bergman films. And we see them outside trying to interact with people, but it's just so impossible. And they're just stuck there. And there's no reason why they should be there. I'm not, it's, it won't be explained to say, oh, well, you know, they came over and ran out of money. It's, it, it, why they're there is immaterial. How far down the line are you with it? Um, I've been working on it quite a while. I, I, I applied for uh, the Venice Film Festival do a scheme that's financed by Gucci called... Uh, the Venice Biennale College, and they pick 12 films a year, and you do a process over over that year, and three of them get made into feature films, and they get premiered at the following year's Venice Film Festival, each budgeted at around, I think, €200,000. And so we applied for that. I'm waiting to hear whether we're on that probably the next week or so, because it's... All the 12 will be launched in Venice at the end of August. Uh, but if we don't get selected for that, 
and possibly, I was going to do an ultra, ultra, ultra low budget, but the biggest issue is because it has to be in French and we can't, we can't have English actors who can't speak French who, who are phonetically reading the French words because once we screen in France or any foreign festival, it'll just become a cult classic as a comedy which I really, really don't want, obviously. So it has to be French actors. And so I don't know any French actors. And so we have to have a little bit of money to bring two native French speakers okay. to New Brighton. And so you if we don't get on this scheme, <laughs> it will probably be really quite... Um, it will be quite low budget. It'll be a really quick shoot because it's not that... It's not going to be that much work. You know, all the scenes, all the scenes in the apartment can be done anywhere, and it's probably like a week in New Brighton. And, and, and I want the toughest, horriblest weather as possible. I want really rainy, rainy and windy and, and, and stuff like that. And so where am I with it? Uh, I'm possibly... And the script will be a kind of strange script, you know, because there's not going to be that much dialogue. Hmm. And it'll probably be... The script will be probably a step outline of possibly 20, 30 pages, which is close to being done, but that's going to be reformulated and stuff like that. Well, look, sir, um, thank you very much for having the patience with me to do a second podcast. No problem. It's the Britflix.com podcast. It's the Britflix.com podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.